open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Yes, Ethan, you may. Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 33 this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. I was counting up, and um, we have a number of lessons still remaining in Mark to finish up the book. I'm up to lesson number 45. And I am preparing, I, I, this week I prepared lesson 45, and it was out of, I think, Mark chapter 10. And so between now and the end of Mark chapter 10, we have another 11 lessons just to get through Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 27. I'm going to ask Elijah to read 27, and then we'll just read around the room until we come to verse 33. And we'll read verse 33. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea, Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And Miss Jen isn't quite there yet. Now she is. 828. And they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answered, and he began to teach them, and that the Son of Man was to suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests, and the scribes, and killed, and after three days, rise again. And he spoke that said openly, and Peter took him, and began to rebuke him. But when he had come out that the money he rebuked him, and then just get behind him, taking for thou say not, the thing that will be a God, but the thing that man will be a man. This is a lesser study passage. The passage that we normally study for this event in the life of Christ is actually found in the book of Matthew. But it's also recorded for us again in the book of Mark. And so we're going to look at this this morning as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Have you ever had a hard time getting a straight answer? Eliza's nodding her head, yes. Okay, Eliza, tell me about a time that you had a hard time getting a straight answer. Well, tell me about it. Tell us about it. I, I can think of several. <laughs> she doesn't like it when I put her on the spot. Eliza comes to us and says, Daddy and Mommy, what's for breakfast? What's Daddy's normal response to a question like that, Elijah? Food. Food. We're going to eat food for breakfast. But it's vague. It's ambiguous. It, some answers leave you wondering or drawing your own conclusions. 
And really, if I aunt, if Eliza comes to me and said, Daddy, what's for breakfast? And I just say food, there is no real clarity of answer. It could be cereal, it could be eggs, it could be milk, it could be yogurt, it could be rice, it could be, for that matter, it could be steak. Not that we have steak in the house, but it, it could be just about anything. But when it comes to what we think of Christ, there is no room for amb ambiguity. When it comes for what we think of Jesus Christ and who He really is, there is no room for vagueness. What we think about Christ determines not only what we'll do with Him, but also what He will do with us. What we think about Christ, how we answer that question that is asked in this passage, and whom do ye say that I am? Whom do men say that I am? When we answer that question, it will determine not only what we will do with Christ, but also how Christ will respond to us. We, we've been, um, when I've been preaching on Sunday nights, we've been looking at the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah is a good example right here. When God was going to judge the Ninevites for their sin, but when the Ninevites changed and began to follow God, to follow Christ, Christ's interaction with the Ninevites changed. The same thing happens to us. When we, how, how we, what we determine about, and I'm going to just say it straight up, when we, what we determine about the deity of Christ will govern our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Whether that is a relationship of judgment or whether that is a relationship of love as a father. Matthew 12, 30 says, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. The text above highlights the value of a proper understanding of Christ. Our understanding will vary based upon our own individual growth. But it all begins with seeing Him by faith as Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, and the sent one from God. A proper understanding of Christ begins by seeing Him by faith as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the sent one of God. After healing the blind man, Christ and His apostles traveled to the mountainous region of Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, at the foot of Mount Hermon. Philip of the Herodian family had named this city after Augustus Caesar, adding Philippi to distinguish it from another city named Caesarea. It was a beautiful location with lush vegetation and a mountain that served as the headwaters for the Jordan River. This setting beneath the cool mountain would have been an ideal getaway for a time of training. Jesus begins and he directs the conversation by asking the disciples, Whom do men say that I am? Again, 
Christ did not ask this question for his own understanding. And it was not a sign of insecurity, nor was it his desire to play the crowd. He was leading the disciples in a training exercise. Ethan? At first, we see an inadequate assessment. An inadequate assessment. In Matthew 27 and 28, we read, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the town's accessory of Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answer, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. There was, during Jesus' earthly ministry, and even today, there is a debate about exactly who Jesus Christ is. Now, the Bible is very clear. Jesus Christ is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. But on believers and, and other people in general, some people view Christ as a, just as a good man. Some people view him as a fraud and as a charlatan. There is even today, that there was during Christ's day, and there is even today a debate among people about exactly who Christ is. The apostles did not really know how to answer this question. They seemed to know there was something different about the life and ministry of Jesus. But they did not, at this point, still have a really firm understanding of exactly what it is. Adding to their confusion was the fact that, just as today, there were many different opinions about Christ's identity. They told Jesus what they had heard. Some people believed that Christ was Elijah, who, if you remember, did not die and was taken to heaven in a whirlwind. Others, as seen in Matthew 16, thought that he was Jeremiah, also known as the weeping prophet. Jesus is known as the man of sorrows. Yet others thought he was John the Baptist, that he had resurrected as John the Baptist. The thought that he was John the Baptist is especially perplexing, since John and Jesus had been publicly seen with each other. But at that time, there was some people that believed that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. They were quite different in personality and ministry. So it does seem strange to us today that people would confuse them. But it seems from what we can read in the Bible and from what we can read in extra-biblical sources, that the majority of the people were primarily content to just say that Jesus was an amazing teacher and perhaps a prophet. He is a great teacher. He is a prophet. But their assessment was inadequate because they missed the reality of who he is and why he came. Similarly today, many are content to think that Jesus is just a good man and an insightful teacher. But how could he be a good man while proclaiming himself to be the Son of God? That the two seem to go, that they don't go together. I have a 
extended family member that believes that Jesus Christ is a good man and that his teachings are good and should be followed. But he does not believe that Jesus Christ is God. But he never can quite explain the dichotomy if Je because Jesus said that he was God. So either he is a liar, either Jesus Christ is a liar, or he is what he said he is. If Jesus Christ is a liar, then how can he be a good man? And at that point, my, my friend just kind of throws up his hands and says, I don't know. It is an inadequate assessment to just say that Jesus is a good man, or a good prophet, or a good teacher. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. If Jesus was just a good man, he would either be a lunatic, a crazy person, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is, either Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or else a madman, a crazy man. That there is no other option. You can either shut him up and say, oh, he's a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But to just say that he is a great teacher, he has not really left that option open to us. He's either a great, he's either God himself, or he is exactly what he, he he's either what he said he is, or he's a lunatic. In verse 29, we see an inspired acknowledgement. An inspired acknowledgement. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. Jesus continued the conversation by asking the disciples, But whom say ye that I am? This was an important test for the disciples. Peter quickly responded, Thou art the Christ. Matthew's accounting continues when he says, in Matthew 16, 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter's response was significant because his use of the word Christ set Jesus apart from all others and identified him clearly as the promised Messiah. Peter's response was significant because of his use of the word Christ. The word Christ means the Messiah, the appointed one, the promised one. Peter's acknowledgement was evidence of the power of God at work in his heart. It verified and validated the work of Jesus in the sense that Peter was himself a product of transforming grace. Jesus himself, uh, I'm sorry, Peter himself recognized that Jesus Christ was God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 4, says, 
but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Peter was declaring Jesus to be the prophet, priest, and king. He was declaring him to be God. G Peter was admitting that this is God in the flesh. His confidence, Peter's confidence, was not shaken by the opposition of teachers of the wall and the Pharisees. It was not shaken by the contempt of the rulers and priests. None of these things moved Simon Peter. He believed that the man he followed, Jesus of Nazareth, was the promised Savior, the true prophet greater than Moses, the long-predicted Messiah. He declared it boldly and unhesitatingly as the creed of himself and his few companions. When asked, who is this man? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. If Jesus is your Lord, Praise Him and thank Him for what He has given you. Begin by thanking Him for your job, for your relationships, for your home, or even thank Him for the shoes on your feet. And if, you, and if He really is the Lord of your life, I would encourage you to come to the place where you would thank Him even if you had none of those things, simply because He is God. It's easy, and we've looked at this in sermons, and I've said it before, but it's easy to thank God when things are going well. It's easy to thank God when our bank account is full, when we have a warm roof over our head, and we have air con to turn on to bring the temperature down to a more reasonable level. It's much harder to thank God when you're living in a cardboard box on the side of a street. It's much harder to thank God when the landlord is coming to kick you out of your apartment because you haven't paid rent in the last year. We need to come to the point where we can thank God simply because He is God. We begin recognizing Jesus' deity by praise and thanksgiving. The real victory in a relationship with Christ is not in what He does for us, but in the person He is. The real victory, the, the real growth comes when we recognize that, that our relationship with Christ is not based upon what He does for us, but it is based on the person that He is. This go, even goes down to our prayer life. There, there are so many aspects of this that we can just really dig into. But when... All too often, when we're praying, our prayers are, God, please give me, please do this, please help me with this, please, Lord, I need this situation resolved. God, please do this for me. Instead of just coming before Him and resting in His presence, praising Him for who He is and what He has done. Christian maturity comes when we rest in the person that He is rather than what we can obtain from Him. 
In verses 30 through 32, we see an illuminated awareness. An illuminated awareness. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests, and of the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he spake that openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. I have always found it interesting here that Jesus very clearly began to teach his disciples that he was going to be going to the cross, that he was going to be killed, and that he would be resurrected. But yet, they still missed it. We'll get to that here in just a minute. It is interesting that in response to Peter's spiritually discerned testimony, Jesus instructed the disciples to tell no man. This is not the first time in the book of Mark that we have come across a passage or where Jesus told somebody, don't tell anybody who I am, or don't tell anybody what I have done. What? This is in no way an indication that we are not to share Christ but a warning that the apostles did not yet have the full understanding necessary to tell others what the Christ was all about. Had they shared their understanding of Christ at that time, they may have presented him as the king that had come to claim his throne. The hope of the Jews throughout the ages was a Messiah that would come and would, would cleanse the land of all opponents and oppressors. So many would have misunderstood that Jesus had not come to take his throne, but instead to humbly die on the cross. The disciples at this point still did not quite understand the purpose of Jesus coming to earth. They had a mistaken view of Christ's purpose. Christ had come to die on the cross so that he could take the punishment for our sin. He will come back and he will reign again from the city Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. He will reign. The disciples at this point, they were looking for that kingdom to be set up right then and there. So Jesus told them, you don't quite get it, so don't tell people who I am just yet. The time will come. To this end, Jesus began to teach them, verse 31 says, and he begins, he begins to teach them about what exactly is going to take place. We see here that there is a shift in his teaching ministry. Up to this point, his teaching centered on his deity. The miracles that he did centered on who he was, proving that Jesus Christ was God. When he calmed the storm, it proved that he had um, power over nature. What human man has power to stop a storm? When he broke the bread and fed the multitudes, it proved that he had power that was beyond imagined to prove exactly who he was. What human man could take seven loaves and a few fishes 
and feed 4,000 people? What human man can take five small fish and two pieces of bread and feed 5,000 men plus women and children? What human man could take water and turn it into grape juice? The, the miracles that Jesus had done to this point had been done to prove exactly who he was. But now, his teaching, we see a shift here. From this point, the teaching of Jesus begins to shift from who he is to future events. It begins to shift from Jesus Christ being God to what is going to take place in the future. We must understand that although this lesson seems simple enough to us, we have the lens of history and the help of the Holy Spirit to understand what Jesus did. I have often said that it is easier to see in hindsight than it is to see in foresight. It is often easier to see in hindsight than it is to see in foresight. For the apostles, on the other hand, this lesson was to help them understand what Jesus would do. And it was different than what they would have expected. They were expecting a king. They were expecting somebody to throw off the, break, the, the, the oppression of the Romans. They were expecting him to set up his um, kingdom. It was different than what they had expected. Jesus wasn't saying that his death was some inevitable, inescapable occurrence. It was something that he was compelled to do. The cross was the will of his Father and the objective of his life. This lesson was to help them understand what Jesus would do and that it was different than what they had expected. Clearly, Peter was not in favor of what we know to be the plan of God. Peter did something that appears almost unfathomable, ununderstandable. Here he is saying, Jesus, you're God. And then, almost in the same breath, he turns around and says, Jesus, you don't know what you're saying. The Bible says in verse 32 that Peter took him and began to rebuke him. According to one commentary, Peter clearly understood Jesus' words, but he could not reconcile his view of the Messiah with the suffering and death that Jesus predicted. So Peter began to rebuke him. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, you're wrong. And if we're honest with ourselves, this same spirit has existed in our lives when we've been disappointed with God's handling of our lives. Haven't we all at some point questioned God when things happen in a way that is inconsistent with our will? This same mindset is essentially doing the exact same thing that Peter did, rebuking God for, his, for following his will. Peter said, God, you're wrong. I'm going to rebuke you. Jesus, you're wrong because you're not doing what I want you to do. It's easy to read this passage and say, I would never have rebuked God, Jesus, like Peter did. 
It's easy to read this passage and pass judgment upon him. Peter, how could you not see this? But then all too often, God does something that we don't necessarily like. There's something we've prayed for for many years and it never comes to pass. There's something that we want God to do and He says no. There's some place we want to go and God says no. And then we get all upset. God, why? What? You don't know what... We're just like Peter. All so often. We must remember that God's way is always the best way, even if we don't understand it at the time. Peter did not understand what was taking place. He did not understand what God was doing. But we must remember that God's way is always the best way, even if we do not understand it. Then in verse 33, we see an intentional assertion. An intentional assertion. Did everybody get that one written down? Elijah will go back to it. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Although Peter took him aside to correct him, Jesus turned about and looked onto his disciples as he responded. Jesus was not calling Peter Satan, but he was intentionally asserting that Peter was doing the same thing that Satan had done during Christ's temptation in the wilderness. Peter was seeking to usurp God's plan with man's plan. Peter was seeking to usurp God's plan with man's plan. Jesus wanted us to know that Satan's plan involves our will, while God's plan involves our yielding of our will to Him. Satan's plan involves our will. What do I want? God's plan says, what I want doesn't matter, God. It's what you want. I am yielded completely and totally to you. I am surrendered to you. Even if I don't understand it, even if I don't like it, I am surrendered to you. Peter tried to accommodate God to his understanding and desires rather than learning of him and doing his will. Peter tried to accommodate God to Peter's understanding and Peter's desires instead of learning of him and doing God's will. Jesus essentially said, do not seek to lead me, seek to learn of me. Matthew 11, 28 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. There is no fashioning God after our agenda. Even when it comes to prayer, there is no fashioning God after our agenda. James says that one of the reasons why we often do not get our prayers answered is because we ask amiss. We come to God and say, God, I don't care what your, what your will is. I want you to do this, this, and this. Well, we never really say it like that. 
We never really go out and say, God, I don't care what you want to do, but you need to do this. But is it not, if we were honest with ourselves, what we do so many times when we come before our Heavenly Father? God, do this. God, you have to do this. God, do this. God, I need you to do this for me. There is no fashioning God after our own agenda. It is only when we accept His plan that we experience peace. It is only when we come to hit, rest in Him, fully surrender, do we experience His peace. The peace that passes understanding. The peace that's able to say, I don't care what's going on around me. Inside there's calm. Because I know that our Heavenly Father is in control. It's easy to read this passage of Scripture and just really... Tear Peter down for his question, for his rebuking of Christ. But yet, if we were honest with ourselves, so many times we do the same thing. We try to fashion God into our plans, our desires, our wills, instead of coming to Christ and saying, God, please help me to learn of you. Help me to understand you. Help me to understand your ways. I don't want my ways. I want your ways. May this morning, may we all come before him. God, help me to understand your ways. Rather than demanding our own Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the book of Mark. We thank you for the, for the events that you recorded for us in your word. And Lord, it is so easy when we read this passage to focus on Peter's rebuking of you and to think, well, I would never do that. But yet, all so often we do in our own lives. Oh, we're not standing directly in front of you as Peter was. But we come to you and insist upon our own way, our own plans, our own desires, instead of seeking to really learn of you. Lord, help us to learn of you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to have the peace that passes all understanding. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.